All right, this is Access Reality. I'm Ali Kadili. Uh, we have to, we have Matt Stoller here, who's a fellow at the Open Markets Program. Uh, no, sorry, I'm at the American Economic Liberties Project. Oh, is that right? What's the Open Markets Program? Then? So it's this. We split off. It's just a. They're both think tanks. We just a piece of Open Markets split off, and uh, we became the American Economic Liberties Project. Perfect. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So before that, you were at the on Capitol Hill for six years, That's and. Right. Most recently, worked as the senior policy advisor at the Senate Budget Committee. Right. Where, uh, yeah, helped uh, with the Federal Reserve reform, uh, restructuring of trade deals, and concentration of power in the banks. And your writings have appeared in the New York Times, Atlantic, and other places. So, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, and then also I have a book called Goliath: The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. So that's the other piece. Anyway, awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great. No worries. Yeah. So. Um, how would you, just for people who don't know, um, where would you classify yourself along the political spectrum today in the U.S.? Yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of a, I'm a democratic populist, right, which is like kind of a weird, uh, it's a weird formulation, but, uh, but in America, you know, the populists were a group, were largely farmers in the 1880s and 1890s who sought controls over corporate power, railroads and banks, and, um, uh, and, and corporate monopolies. And they really structured a lot of, of the thinking of America in the 20th century. So a lot of the New Deal, um, the, the way that the U.S. organized the fight against producing to fight against the, the in World War II, um, a lot of the political and economic structures in the 50s and 60s, the, those all came out of the, the populists. And they weren't right-wing. Populism has the sort of right-wing connotation today, but it was originally, it was a left-wing movement that was focused on making sure that people that produce, that work for a living, uh, making things, that those those people should have control over the institutions, um, they should have control over their own work. And, um, you know, today the, 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 you know, the right-wing has kind of co-opted some of that language, but the original idea was to constrain um, banks and financiers and monopolists. And that's where I am now. Um, there's also a social justice angle. Uh, you know, left populists were very anti-racist. Um, they were, they were um, feminists, you know, the, the, all the, the social justice, the t social tolerance, cultural tolerance. That was a big part of that movement too. So that's where I am. I'm culturally tolerant, socially tolerant, and, um, and, uh, and also opposed to concentrated corporate power. So does FDR belong in that? Uh, kind yeah, that's right. The, yeah. FDR, FDR was the, you know, the New Dealers, you know, came out of the, the populist movement. They were influenced by, uh, heavily influenced by populists. So. Um, so today, if you mention that to the average person who doesn't follow politics too closely, um, they would immediately think that Bernie Sanders now represents that camp. Oh, I, I think that's I think that's right. Um, I think that Bernie in twenty twenty was was well. I would say Bernie's a little confusing, right? Because Bernie, on the one hand, Bernie did talk a lot about FDR and the New Deal, but FDR was not a socialist and didn't like socialism. And the democratic socialist tradition that Bernie talks about was really not very different than the New Deal tradition. It's just a European framing, so it's not. It's not native to America. It's kind of like America, New Dealers helped structure a lot of European political systems after World War II, um, obviously in concert with European, European elites, but, uh, but that, the, those social democratic systems, you know, and that social democracy existed before World War II, but, but really what we think of as social democracy in Europe today is largely a function of the, the post-World War II uh, political organizing strategies of which American New Dealers were a big part. Um, so, so a lot of that went over to Europe and then got re-imported to the US through Bernie. And I'm just kind of like, cut out the middlemen, let's just, let's just do it, you know, old school New Deal, you know, rah, rah, American Revolution, that kind of thing, instead of adopting all of this weird, like bureaucratization, which kind of works in Europe for, you know, for some, you know, because of, of different, um, institutional traditions. It doesn't really work in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, does the fact that they have multiple political parties play a role in this versus the two-party system? No, I don't. Matter? No, I don't think so. I, it's really not. Um, I mean, what you see all over the world is, except sort of in in China, 
is an increase in uh, populism and frustration with, with like the existing order, regardless of what, what that system, the voting system or financing systems look like. And it's because like we think of politics as, you know, how much so social welfare you spend, right? Or, or maybe some parts of industrial regulation, stuff like that. But politics is actually much bigger than that. Politics is actually how you interact with corporations, right? And, and corporations, if you look at all around the world, the corporations are all, you know, they're all either the same, like Google is in every country, Facebook is in every country, or they're very similar. So, it, so you know, Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank, not the same institutions, but the, you know, they're, they're, they operate really similarly. They're really out of, um, they're out of control of our democratic institutions. So everybody's kind of responding to the same global political order. Um, you know, people talk about how Europe has different frameworks for operating in, you know, they're more regulated, they, you know, have better the labor, whatever it is, um, America's more innovative, whatever you want to say, like all of that is nonsense. Everybody depends on China to make their stuff, right? Which is why we had shortages everywhere when this pandemic hit. And everybody is frustrated with their elites, which is why you see, you know, this kind of turn to these swamp creature politicians in every country. Um, it's, it's because we are collectively across the West, across most, much of the world, we have, we have shrunk politics uh, so that corporations, corporate and financial power are not part of it. And that is why we're all seeing like similar political dynamics everywhere. This concentration of manufacturing in China, was this not a choice made in the 1990s it was. by politicians, which under the guise of free trade, you know, cheaper yep. goods, they basically de-industrialized yep. uh, the U.S. and the entire nation. Like what, what, of what benefit was that to the average person? Well, so, so the- Getting cheaper goods? Or? There's a lot of reasons they did it, but they're, they're basically, um, you know, there's this, there's the more, uh, selfish i think you'd call it the selfish rationale i'm not the, these rationales are you know any large policy shift has multiple rationales and i don't think any one of them is necessarily more legitimate than the other but there's the selfish rationale which is just that um corporate leaders here didn't want to deal with labor so they just crushed labor by taking all the important work and putting it in china right and that of course that's not fair of course that's a terrible thing to do and you, you see, you know, a massive opioid epidemic here, you see suicides, you see just like a much weaker, more fragile country and you see huge inequality in case, but that, that's the, um, that's the like, uh, you know, selfish rationale of neoliberalism. But the other rationale, and I think this is really important too, is that there was a fundamental geostrategic argument for it. So it wasn't all that people were just like, aha, now it's my time to get rich. A lot of them did get rich. But the rationale in the 90s for doing this was also that, you know, it was a kind of, nobody said it this way, maybe Henry Kissinger a little bit. It was a sort of managed decline of the American empire. So this idea, America has, is, is hegemonic, but that won't last forever because China is really big and is going to grow. And so the question is, how do you ensure that Enlightenment principles, and I'm not saying I agree with this, I'm just giving you the argument. I'm saying, how do we ensure that liberal democratic principles that have largely governed a lot of our global system, although I think, you know, again, I'm not agreeing with this as a frame, but this is what they think. Um, how do you ensure that that continues? And the argument was, well, and this was true in the Clinton and then, a, then, then Bush and then Obama administrations, what we'll do is we will bind China to the global rules-based order and make them a responsible stakeholder, AKA give them power and responsibility. And they will sort of grow up and become a liberal, more liberal democratic society as they are more bound to these, to these rules. Um, kind of like what happened with a whole bunch of countries, you know, in, in, after World War II, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, who transitioned from dictatorships and authoritarian societies to democratic societies, well, we'll just do that to China. You give them McDonald's and all of a sudden, you know, they want to vote, right? That was the theory behind it. And then as China becomes more powerful, then we'll have a liberal democratic China and we can continue this sort of stable enlightenment-based global order. That was the theory behind, that was the other theory behind all the 
you know, the foreign policy uh, kind of and, and military establishment when they said, hey, let's move all our important manufacturing to China. Um, so that's what happened. But do you have to deindustrialize yourself and move your critical manufacturing to China to do that? Why can't you just open it up somehow, do the McDonald's, you know, and then they'll slowly open up to American culture? And... Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a really bad decision, right? Like it was, it was catastrophic. Um, I, uh, you know, the the reason that they deindustrialized the U.S. because the, the U.S. has been slowly deindustrializing since the late 1950s, and it, not necessarily for for terrible reasons. Um, you know, the, there was this theory in the 1950s called affluence, and that that theory of affluence was written by an economist named John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a book called The Affluent Society in 1958. The idea there is America is just so rich, just so incredibly wealthy, so technologically advanced that, you know, we really don't have to worry about the problem of wealth or the problem of distribution anymore. I mean, it's just, that's over. That's, that's the old where world of scarcity. Today, we're in a world of wealth. And the question is, what do you do with the wealth, right? You, you know, do supporting, you know, and, and there were a lot of arguments, but it, but essentially it was, you know, make people shouldn't have to work as much. They should be able to do more art instead of work. You know, we need to like make sure that other countries can get wealthy as well, that kind of thing. And over the course of the 1950s, 60s and 70s, the U.S. this through the State Department would just strategically trade middle-class jobs to other countries for geopolitical favors. So Spain, you know, they didn't want Spain to go communist. So they traded like a bunch of the shoe industry that used to be in New England to the Spanish in the 1970s. And, and the auto industry, they were like, okay, we want Japan to be stronger to stand up to like the Soviet Union. So we're gonna, we're gonna um, allow them to have a really vibrant car industry and, and they can get access to American markets. And the Europeans, you know what? They are destroyed after World War II. We're gonna allow them to have tariffs against American agricultural goods, but we won't put tariffs on our markets because we're just so wealthy, it doesn't even matter, right? That was the theory. And so, and it worked, right? And America was really, really wealthy. I mean, overwhelmingly so. Up until like, you had a kind of convergence in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, but the policymaking elite really never changed their thinking that America is actually not capable of trading away more and more and more of the middle class. That's going to have destabilizing political effects in the U.S. It started having destabilizing effects really quickly in the 1960s, but, but, it, but the destabilization really got worse in the, in the 2000s. And um, so that, that, that was the thinking, I think, among a lot of those kind of among those foreign policy types. And then obviously people from all over the world, like the Germans uh, and the Japanese, they were always very, very opposed to rebalancing that global order. So they, you know, they got, a, the Germans got a really good deal, like out of this arrangement where they got to export, but didn't have to import. They got a lot of boosts for their industry. And then the theory originally was, well, that Germany has to rebuild after World War II, but now it's like 80 years later. And so it, it's time to rebalance. They don't want to rebalance because the deal is good for them. They're essentially free riding off of America. America, you know, and American policymakers were like, it's important to let others free ride off of our society for a while because we're so much wealthier, right? And, um, and also it's good that they free ride because then that gives us military leverage over them as well. So it's not, I mean, I'm not saying this was all altruism. This, this was sort of a, a strategy. It was a, kind of a carrots and sticks approach. Um, the problem is now America actually just doesn't have the, the wealth in the middle class to be a stable society. And so those policymaking elites are trying to wrestle with that. And, you know, Trump is a very crude uh, messenger for this, but he is actually delivering that message, which is there ain't no more middle class to trade away. Right. And now the rest of the world is like, wait a second, this dependence that we have on the US to continue taking their jobs and being getting access to their markets with really no, um, like with no um, reciprocity or little reciprocity, you know, they're, you know, and, and that's good for Wall Street too. I mean, that's the other thing, American domestic elites, you know, that, that's the greedy part, like they did really well off of this. 
um, as well. So it's not like it's not like everybody in America was suffering. Like it just there was a, a massive stratification. But that's what everybody is wrestling with, which is just that the, the American order is not stable anymore because America's not stable anymore because this order destabilized it. And but other countries don't want this to change because it was a good deal for them. So I understand the examples you gave in Spain and Germany and other places in Europe where you where you trade, you know, that for specific geopolitical purposes. But what happened in the 90s with, you know, the free trade with China and everything else was just on such a mass scale that wasn't seen before. And from my vantage point, the big companies um, benefited from that because obviously they uh, got to cut production costs and they got cheap labor. But as a country, you got industrialized. And then you made China extremely wealthy, much more quicker than it would have on its own. And they stole all that technology. Now they're making their own. Well, they didn't, they didn't steal it all. They, they, they bought a lot of it. They stole some of it, but they also bought a lot of it. I mean, don't, keep in mind, like, and they used predatory mercantilist tactics that are not theft to, to get it. And we didn't use our trade laws to defend ourselves. So you're not wrong, but you're giving you know, you're not, you're letting our policymakers off the hook a little bit by saying that China stole it all. Like this was a deal between Wall Street and China and our elites and the Chinese elites. And it was, it was a bad deal. We shouldn't have done it, but, but we did it. Um, I well, guess- yeah, and I, heard, I heard some of the companies- um, but just, to, but just to give you yeah. like a sense in the nineties, the big difference is the cold war was over. So the cold war, that geostrategic purpose of, of having a deal where America would stabilize kind of the, the non-Soviet parts of the world using carrots and sticks. Uh, that ended with the Cold War. And then the foreign policy elite in the US just decided, well, we don't really have any opposition. And, uh, you know, we don't, like, we won. So we'll just turn China into a democracy. And, you know, we didn't, we were very clear about those carrots and sticks, which which was sort of like, Team, team democracy or, you know, team US gets those, those carrots, team Soviet doesn't. And after, after the Cold War ended, the American foreign policy establishment was just like, everyone's now a liberal democracy. Everybody gets, you know, American industry. And oh, cool, I get these consulting contracts on the side. This is great, right? That's what happened. And it was crazy. And as you noted, it was just like this massive, deindustrialization that was much bigger than anything that happened, um, you know, in the seventies or, or eighties or sixties. I heard some of the tech and American manufacturing companies operating out of China were either turning a blind eye to espionage to copy their technology or freely giving it away in exchange for, you know, being on good terms with the communist government and staying in China and being able to produce. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what, what used to happen prior to the 1990s is America, saw its multinationals as strategic national assets and would operate, you know, through those, those uh, multinationals for, you know, American policy ends. And, you know, it was always, a, there was always tension there, but we would, you know, the, you know, the, the corporations would move, like, I think, you know, RCA at a certain point, the U.S. said, you're now going to make radios in Taiwan right? Move your production to Taiwan because we want Taiwan to have something to do. Um, and we want to transfer this technology to Taiwan for geopolitical alliances. And same thing with, with televisions in Japan. And, you know, we, we constructed industries there because and transferred technology from the U.S. to these countries for, you know, geopolitical reasons. And um, that was because you had a, a, a strong U.S. state. And one of the the choices that the libertarians made was to break the U.S. state. And that was part of the national security world and the military world were fine with breaking the U.S. state and then just allowing American multinationals to operate kind of in a rootless way. And the result is that those multinationals, when they moved production to China, they were listening to the Chinese state and they didn't care what the U.S. state said. So even today, they're not planning on reshoring supply chains and they don't think that the US government is is strong enough to mandate anything or capable enough to mandate anything. And this is like the tension today where you see with the pandemic, like we need a strong state, right? That's what's very obvious. The US state needs to come back. We need to govern again. 
And um, you see the tension there where, where Trump wants to govern in some ways, but also is really reluctant to impose anything on, on powerful interests. Trump was hinting in uh, during his, um, during the election time that in the campaigns that um, he would try to bring those industries back to reindustrialize the US by somehow imposing tariffs or, I don't see that he actually did anything with that regard. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the tariffs are basically what he did. You know, he, he said, we're gonna put up tariffs and we're gonna block immigration. And then that's gonna create, you know, that's gonna kind of create a labor shortage because companies are gonna wanna bring back production and that's gonna, and there won't be workers. So a labor shortage will then drive up wages. That's the philosophy. That's Trump's political philosophy. Higher wages, people will be happy. They'll vote for me again. That's a good way to protect America and, and you know, build a smart politics. The problem is that the tariffs have not actually reshored production. They've, they've moved production out of China to some production of some things to like Vietnam or to Sri Lanka or other countries, but they haven't reshored stuff to the US. And that's because there are two parts to the offshoring. One of them is just, you know, uh, the like a lack of tariffs, right? So that's, that's true. But the other one is that there is not any, there's the, the financial institutions in this country, which say those that, that actually um, move resources, right? Decide whether to build factories or not and where to build them. Uh, they, we don't have financial institutions that are focused on domestic production, right? We have financial institutions that are focused on, you know, that are, that are focused on like um, predatory behavior. So private equity, or small or you know business development corporations which are small business lenders or um you know or large banks none of them actually do real commercial loans to build factories and you can see that through the paycheck protection program which is like the small business program they uh that the government just authorized when they moved a bunch of money and said here's government guaranteed loans that's profitable go make loans it was not the big banks that were able to do it. It was the small banks that were able to do it. And those small banks have been, you know, declining in importance for a really long time. So that's one of the things that we're learning is that our financial system, even if we wanted to resource stuff, moving through our existing financial system wouldn't be the way to do that because our, you know, private equity guys don't know how to build anything. All they know how to do is, you know, is move legal shells around and loot them. Like being able to lend to do into textiles is, is hard, right? You have to have expertise at textiles, right? You have to know a banker who's lending to, to companies that do textiles has to have experience in the textile industry. They have to be able to go to a textile company and evaluate the pr production processes and the strategy and say, yeah, we're gonna lend you more so that you can make more factories or, or so that you can hire and train more people. But they don't actually have that expertise. They're all just a bunch of like Harvard Business School you know, McKinsey dipshits who don't know, they know financial engineering. That's all they know. So how do you solve that problem uh, without having to resort to full-blown communism or authoritarianism to force them to do something? How do you, how do you help that? Well, I think, um, you know, I think you need to, uh, first of all, I think the tariffs are good. I think we should have more, more tariffs on more items. And I think the government itself needs to start lending. I think the government needs to build out uh, public banking institutions that can do that. Like they like through the, the Small Business Administration, expand that. I think the government should um, break up the banks. Banks are too big, they're not doing commercial lending. And um, the uh, change banking policy to facilitate more, more commercial lending and manufacturing and, and, and lending to manufacturing. And then uh, prevent, just block a lot of the bad behavior by private equity. So if you want to have a financial system that's focused on uh, engineering instead of financial engineering, then block the tricks that financial engineers use, right? Which are largely about moving legal shells so that you can borrow money and then not have to pay it back, right? You can borrow the money. I borrow the money in company A, then I, you know, so the company A has a bunch of cash and then a bunch of debt because you borrowed the money. Then you create another company shell, company B, and you move the cash to company B 
and the debt stays on company A's balance sheet. And then company A goes bankrupt. That debt gets wiped off. And oh, what do you know? You got this legal shell over here with all this cash that you can just take. That's, that's fundamental. That's just stealing, right? But that's what a lot of these guys are doing. Um, that's what private equity really is. It's not entirely what they do. Some, they, sometimes they do you know, some useful things. But like, that's a large part of their, why they have really high returns. It's like there, there are not a lot of businesses where you can put a dollar in and get a 40% return on it. Um, there, that, that's, that's not a normal thing to do. What's, so the, the way that they're getting that really high return is they're, they're either finding a business with, which is a monopoly or building a monopoly, which you can get those kinds of returns, or they're just looting, right? And that's, so, so you, you, know, you need to get rid of the looting, right? You need to make it so that your financial system stops looting. And then they'll find other ways to lend that, you know, that do, you know, that you'll get to your six or 7% return. And if you're getting a six or 7% return, that, that you can do by building a factory, right? You borrow at 3%, you lend at six or 7%. That's not a, a business that you'll become a, a billionaire. It's a business that will let you be, have a nice life and will help you actually create productive capacity. Um, back to politics here for a second. So the is the paradigm of left versus right, Republican versus Democrat kind of outdated now? Is it kind of on the ground really replaced by populist versus establishment? You know, I I would say that I was let me take issue with the question. I don't actually know that left and right was ever really a good framework. I'm not sure. I'm not saying it wasn't. I just left and right comes from the French Revolution when people on the left part of the, um, was it called the assembly or something, whatever it was called, they would sit on the, the left. Uh, and some, some people would sit on the left and some people would sit on the right. And then it just became the left and the right. And the left was more redistributive and the right was, was less redistributive, I guess. Um, and I think that that, you know, I'm not sure that I ever made totally made sense, but like one way to, that I understand politics and there's lots of different, you can pick a lot of different fissures and you can organize your politics around a lot of different cracks, right? Cause, cause society is, is like pretty flexible. Um, one way to understand, um, you know, politics is to say that there's just ethnic divisions and you can organize our po politics around ethnic divisions if you want. You just take a bunch of ethnic groups and you put them in one group and you take a, some other ethnic groups and you put them in another group and you have them fight or argue, right, about who gets what, right? And, you, and those ethnic groups are somewhat arbitrary and you can move them back and forth and move them around, right? Um, and that's, that's one way to do to, to do politics. And you have that in America. I think you have that in every country, but in America, you know, it, it, the fulcrum is race, which is, you know, socially defined, but is real. Another way to do it is around, um, is around not economics necessarily, because economics would, would, or class, class would, would imply the wealthy versus the poor or the wealthy versus the middle class or however you want to you know, just, you're just, just doing it by income level, right. Or wage level, which I think a lot of people like to look at cause it's a number, but I actually think that the better way to do the economic stratification is through producers versus, versus middlemen. Right. And so producers are, you know, workers and farmers and engineers, people that make things right. And sell things that people that like are creating a real product, right? And middlemen are bankers and monopolists and distributors who are um, operating to um, to match the producers with people that buy things, right? Or they're they're operating to match people that save with people that invest. That's what Wall Street does. It, it, it matches the savings of the country with the productive capacity of the country. These are middlemen, right? And you need both in any society. You need people that make things and you need people that match those things and that the, and finance to, um, you know, in, in markets, right? But they have, um, there is a contest over political power, right? And right now we have a society that is dominated by the middlemen. Amazon is fundamentally a middleman. Um, Jeff Bezos is worth $120 billion or whatever it is, not because he's producing anything, but because he has power over that, over this giant middleman in the economy. And 
that middleman is necessary. We obviously don't want to get rid of Amazon, but it shouldn't be that powerful, right? And that power is illustrated by the money that he is worth, right? That's an accounting system for power. Same thing with Wall Street, same thing with like Monsanto or Disney or any of these institutions. We have empowered middlemen in a way that is fundamentally dangerous and imbalanced. And all the producers, right, which you can look at sort of today, the essential workers, that would be the producer class. Um, they are the ones that actually are, are disempowered in this dynamic. And then you have a whole bunch of other people that are usually dependent on what, on the either the producer economy or the middleman economy. And so that if you look at like a lot of the like pundits or, you know, lobbyists or lawyers, they're often dependent on the uh, middleman economy. And some of them are dependent on the producer economy, but like that's where that split is. And then you have the poor, right? Who largely don't, the very poor, like not the working poor, but the very poor um, who aren't producing. And they're, I mean, they're not really important politically because they don't vote, um, but there is a, it's not, um, you know, you have a lot of, you know, you have a lot of service workers. You have a lot of people who are not necessarily part of the producer class that are working people or that are poor. So, and sometimes they vote for like the middleman types, right? So it's like, if you're a, if you're a, um, if you're a waiter in New York right now, like you get laid off, it sucks for you. But like, you're not, you're not part of like the producer economy because you're the people that you're serving are Wall Street types, right? That's what the New York economy is. So that's why you see in a lot of these blue areas, there's very much a, um, you know, they're voting for like um, the, de the Democratic Party is kind of like a coalition of Wall Street and um, and sort of this. It's like the it's not entirely true, but it's like the manufacturers, the, a lot of that, that um, you know, the 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 producerist working class has been pulled out of the Democratic Party. And they're really a, they're really uh, Trump is really appealing to them for for um both for racist reasons, but also because he's actually about tangibly making things. Um, and that, that's not an entirely white working class. What happens to the black working class and the Latino working class that's in this producerist world is they don't vote, right? They just choose not to vote. Um, the white working class will go for Trump. These other producerist classes will not, just not vote. Uh, and then if you're part of that you know, working class and you are in, in this, in the sort of middleman economy, then you'll go for the Democrats. Right. So that's like, and, but it's not, I mean, it's not entirely uh, clean cut because the, de the Democrats and the Republicans have been on both sides of this for a long time. So the, the coalitions are not totally sorted right now, but that's how I think about it. That's why you're seeing more populism on the right. Um, that's why you see some analogies between Bernie and Trump. Um, they're, they're, they're going for this producerist economy and it's not like, it's just about money. A wealthy real estate guy who puts up buildings is more like a producer than he is a middleman to a lot of people, right? And like a corporate lawyer like Elizabeth Warren or Hillary Clinton looks a lot more like a middleman than, you know, to than they than they might then they might actually somebody who's who's standing up for producers, which is why they can maybe a, they they don't necessarily appeal to people that you would think they appeal to, purely because of of economic, um, just because of wage levels. So would would one be correct in concluding that because of this mass disempowerment that you mentioned, that people more resonating towards a populist message? So if they happen to traditionally be on the right, so to speak you know, uh, Trump kind of represents them. If they're on the left, kind of Bernie. But, and that versus the establishment in both parties. But the populist factions in both parties more, will resonate with each other more than they would with the establishment on either side. I mean... It's a realignment, I, of, if you will. I, I think you have to look at what happened in the primary. I mean, and that would be the story I would like to believe. But the reality is, although I don't think, I, I don't think that's the story, um, Bernie lost. And so did Warren. They got crushed. Biden won, right? And Biden was not running on populism. So the Democrats did, you know, the Democrats and, and the, the, you know, Bernie didn't even do that well. He did worse in 2020 than he did in 2016. And Warren didn't, didn't really resonate at all. So populism really 
took a hit in the Democratic Party, a bad hit. It was bad. It was not like, and I don't think that it's like the left. I don't think the left are the populists. I think like it's quite possible actually that Biden will turn out to be more populist than the left. I'm not sure, but that's possible. Um, and, but but I don't, you know, I don't look at the Democratic Party or at the left or at the progressives and see populists. I just don't. I don't think that they are. Uh, they might turn out to be. They might change their minds, but they're not. On the on the Republican side, you know, I think there's a real cross pressure here because Trump, while he has producerist instincts, uh, and he also is super racist, right? Like, you know, there's no question that a lot of his immigration stuff, like the evident delight in cruelty, is pure. That's just pure racism. Um, and um, but but you know, he wants to build things. But the real weakness is not the racism; it's the adherence to Wall Street. So. You know, the, the Steve Mnuchin, the Federal Reserve, the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the huge corporate tax cuts, you know, the deregulation, all of that stuff is, is not reshoring supply chains. It's not bringing production back to the U.S. It's just doing favors for Wall Street. So it's like the tariffs, which these, you know, there's a battle in the Trump administration between the trade guys who are populists and the Wall Street guys who are anti-populists. And so the tariffs, you can see, that's where the, the, the populists are winning. And then pretty much everything else, everything from antitrust to banking law to labor law, you know, the Wall Street guys are winning. So now, in terms of Trump, um, if you knew nothing else about him and just based judging on the fact that he wants to curb immigration, just based on that alone, um, would it be fair to call him a racist based on that? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think um, uh, I, th I think that the you know the immigration like you can have a debate over over immigration, um, but there's a you know there's a I mean if you, there's two ways to answer that. We can talk about immigration, or we can talk about Trump and racism. I'll go with the Trump and racism piece. I think that the, um, you know, the neo-Nazi march in, in Charlottesville, when Trump was like, oh, you know, both sides, right? Where you have one side that's like, you know, not kind of neo-Nazis and the other side that are like counter-protesters. If you can't, if you can't tell the difference, you're, that's pretty bad, right? That's pretty offensive. Um, and then I think there's like a, you know, there is this sort of delight in cruelty that you see from Trump um, and with some of the family separation stuff. Uh, and then just kind of like, it's just, it's sort of a constant drumbeat. And um, so that's where I see the like, the, the, the racism. I think that it's, uh, you know, and constantly like sort of like trying to create ethnic groups and sort of call them, you know, paint them as the other. Um, it's not necessarily as overt as I think a lot of, of Democrats believe or liberals believe, but I, I think there is a belief in, in certain cultural um, social hierarchies on, on Trump's behalf. Um, in terms of immigration, I mean, immigration is a great place for Trump to play that out. And he always tries to make it kind of seem as policy focused as possible. But like, you know, and I think that there is a legitimate argument to have about immigration. Every society has to have that debate internally about population flows. It's obviously important for communities to be able to have some say over who's in their community, although they shouldn't be able to like block anyone who's just one ethnic group. That's, you know, that there, there's a, but there's a debate that you have to have about how to absorb newcomers into your community. And, um, um, that debate though, I think is really, it's really hard to have that debate because it does seem like there's a lot of bad faith coming from the, the, the Trump side on that one. I mean, from, from they, what, would, what he would say, or they would say officially, it's about illegal immigration. It's not about immigration per se. It's about illegal immigration. And he, you know how he always says in his rallies, either we have a country or we don't in terms of borders. No, I, I look, I, I think there's a real problem on the Democratic side where they don't, it's like become outrageous to even talk about the idea of borders, right? Which is ridiculous, right? That's just ridiculous because obviously borders are real. Nobody thinks that we're gonna get rid of borders. 
you know, the people that were screaming abolish ICE were not serious about getting rid of all border protection. Um, there's also trade. I mean, the trade, you know, borders have a lot to do with trade. There, there are international financial flows. We don't use pesos in the U.S. We use dollars. They don't use dollars in Mexico. They use pesos. There are, you know, international um, relations that encompass more than labor that go to capital and goods. So I think there's like important debates that we have to have over borders and how to structure borders. But it's like Trump is, and Trump is doing the argument on trade and he's doing it on labor flows. He's really not doing it on financial flows at all. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think they could, you could make that argument, but I, from what I saw, like there's, there's the Reagan administration basically structured um, a uh, labor policy of allowing millions of undocumented people from Mexico to come in and work at below market wages, right? It was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you're undocumented and that's against the law, but it's okay, don't worry about it, right? And now you have 10, you know, 10, 15 million people that live in the US who are not citizens and they're undocumented, but, and they have kids, but they're American. They've lived here for a long time. It was by not enforcing the law and allowing, you know, it was sort of policy to allow them in to, to undercut American wages. And it's this really, you know, who said this? There's some, um, I love this quote, but I forgot who said it. They said, for my friends, anything for my enemies, the law, right? Like the law was strategically ambiguous or the enforcement of the law was strategically ambiguous. And so I think that any really, any good faith argument about what to do would, you would have to start with, these people should all be citizens, period, full stop. Get, make them all citizens tomorrow. They're Americans. It's our fault we chose to allow strategic ambiguity around the legal enforcement. We did it to undermine their wages and their rights and then the wages of people they were competing against who are other Americans. These are Americans, make them Americans. Uh, or formally, not, they are, they just are Americans, make them citizens, right? That's what I think we need to do. Now we can then argue about the, the right level of immigration flows into, or into the US. But until you acknowledge that those people who are here, 10, 15 million people are American citizens without papers, it's just bad faith, right? It's just bad faith. And I'm not saying that Trump is the only one that did this. But I am saying that because, you know, this debate goes back years, but it's like, come on, guys, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, back to the political parties. It's actually, it's a lot like the German Germans and their relationship with Turkish immigrants, where it's like they brought a whole bunch of Turkish immigrants into Germany in the 1960s. And then but they didn't make them citizens. They just didn't have enough labor. And they didn't even let their kids be citizens. Right. It's like now there are multiple generations of people who have grown up in Germany that are German, they're obviously German, they're culturally German, but their, their parents or grandparents came from Turkey. And so legally, you know, it's just, it's this, it's, that's a really, you know, that's a really ethnocentric, you know, ethnically centric way to build a, a, a country. And it's, it's, it really subverts enlightenment principles. It really does, right? Uh, definitely creates a much bigger problem when you don't enforce the law and then generations and generations are there. And now it's like, well, how do you deal with it now? Now you've got to deal with it somehow. Well, right. But I mean, that's a little bit of a, of a it, deal with it somehow. I mean, it's, it's not, it, it's like either you do what is deeply immoral, which is ethnic cleansing. That's what taking 15 million people out of their homes and moving them to somewhere else where they don't live. That's based on ethnicity. Yeah. That's what that is. That's ethnic cleansing, right? Yeah. And that's one way to deal with it. Yeah. The other way to deal with it is just to say, okay, well, the law was not what we said it was. You're American citizens now. Here's papers. You are American citizens. We're going to give you papers to show that. That's the other way to deal with it. The third way to deal with it is what, you know, everyone else did, which is to pretend that um, just to allow this, this citizen, this situation to move forward and just demonize these people and use them as a political football. And then you'll have ICE, which will do raids on them sometimes or whatever. And it's just like, this is all a result of this um, intentionally ambiguous uh, residency situation that is our fault as, as, uh, as people who make policy in America. Yeah, what I meant was 
like when you don't enforce the law to begin with, then later you're faced with the choice of, oh yeah, yeah we weren't serious about that law. It doesn't apply. It might apply okay. to the to the new people, but not the, the fruit of the poison tree. I think is the legal term, right? When you don't enforce the law, then you have a situation where you've got this big part of society that doesn't that operates according to laws that are not on the books or that operates, you know, and then you have to deal with that because you've legitimized it by not enforcing the law. But then the law, the written law as written doesn't mean as much. And you have to you have to figure out, are we going right. to have a society where the statute matters or are we going to have a society where there's really an informal code? Um, back to the political parties. Um, if you look at a an establishment versus a populist uh, fight within each party, uh, it looks like on the democratic side, the establishment faction has decisively won for now, yeah. and the populist faction has kind of been pushed to the internet, so to speak, or the underground, kind of outside the mainstream decision making, uh, you know, mechanism of the party. Um, on the Republican side, um, it looks. Were you surprised that the Republican establishment, the RNC, the senators, the congressmen kind of coalesced around Trump? Uh, there's still some who don't like him, obviously, in the Republican establishment, but by and large, they've come along. Um, so that's a different, it played out in a very different way in the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that Trump is a populist, right? I mean, Trump has instincts that are populist, but he's largely, you know, if you look at like the lawmaking that they do at the, say the Federal Trade Commission or the Antitrust Division, these guys are just waving mergers through and just doing things to help big business. These guys are just like, you know, in terms of banking law, these guys are just waving Wall Street stuff through. Like it's not, um, like the, the Republicans have coalesced around Trump, not because, you know, they've changed their minds about populism, although some of them have. Um, it's because Trump doesn't actually uh, stop what they really, you know, he'd only, poses minor hurdles to what they really care about, which is corporate power. And they, that's what they're after. That's what Mitch McConnell wants. And he's still largely getting that. In fact, he's probably getting more of it today under Trump than he did under Bush or Obama or, or anyone else. So is he a fake populist? Does he say enough populist things to kind of attract those people with those sentiments, but then not actually deliver? Trump? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. He's a con artist. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, do you feel that uh, on the, in the Democratic Party, this whole issue of uh, political correctness, social justice warrior issues that you alluded to before, has that been used against people on the left in a way? For, for example, like I'll tell you in the debate, you know, uh, when Biden didn't seem like he could string in a coherent sentence together here and there sometimes, but the takeaway from the debates was, well, he committed to a female vice president and that was the story. You should be excited about that. And, it's kind of like, this is what we're giving you, forget the policies kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of a, of a moment when Hillary Clinton in 2016 said, you know, to Bernie, she's like, if we broke up the banks, would that end racism, right? And that I think was like a great example of, um, of the, the sort of debate, right? So, so the, the, the modern democratic party, the thinking among modern Democrats and progressives, whatever you want to call it, comes out of the 19, um, 60s and 70s, the, the affluence frame that I talked to before, which is sort of this idea that corporate power is not relevant. Um, banks and that's not part of politics. What's part of politics is kind of personal liberation, how we treat each other as individuals. It's a kind of libertarian frame or, you know, of, of, of a society. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the criticism that I've made is a woke language, which is this, the language of supposed racial tolerance, where people talk about, um, you know, recognizing privilege and, and, um, and use kind of words that like, are a language in that works in like a, a graduate school seminar to discuss anthropological concepts. But when applied uh, to normal people, you know, it's, it's a, it's a strange language, right? And that's not necessarily bad, except that the culture that I think a lot of people have around that language is that if you use the wrong word to describe the wrong person, then you are cast out. You are no longer, you are now an unperson, right? And this like, there's an over-reliance on the argument on the like claims of racism, right? And because they're not actually seeing institutional racism, what they're seeing is the misuse of this 
hard to learn language. And when and to learn this language requires going through a, a, a elite educational institutions. And so what that means is that the only people who are able to easily make arguments, political arguments, are people who have been through these educational institutions where I've learned this language, right? Anybody else is cast out. And so to me, when I look at these, and this language does not have an economic framework, right? That's the other thing is it's not, it's like what they do with, with um, economics is you say, hey, here's this thing that, you know, this bank is doing that is really dangerous, that's causing all of these problems with mortgages or whatever it would be, private equity, whatever it might be doing. They hand wave and say, oh, that's capitalism. Let's go back to what we're really interested in, which is all of this in-group signaling. So it's not actually, this, this woke language is not actually about racial tolerance. It's not actually about uh, toler cultural tolerance or, or gender-based tolerance. What it's about is aristocratic signaling among people who have been through these um, educational institutions. And it's about avoiding, um, avoiding dealing with corporate power um, because that aristocratic group sits on top of that corporate establishment. They are funded by it, they, they're in that economy, right? Yeah, I mean, it just seems when you look at the, uh, these days anyway, the democratic criticisms of Trump, which is calling him xenophobic because he banned flights from Wuhan, China. Um, they're incensed by, you know, the political incorrectness that he displays, but it seems that they go along with the substantive policies the stimulus and all these other things so it seems that they agree with him on those things because they're not criticizing him on those grounds they're doing it yeah, I mean, it's it's um it's really telling the grounds on which democrats criticize uh, trump you know it's not like you know they'll 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 criticize him for sort of you know he's he does things that i think are deeply immoral and really corrupt right just there are plenty of ways that you could you could argue that he's being bribed Everything from like, you know, copyrights that are that Ivanka Trump got in China to Jared Kushner running uh, a group in the White House that's structuring how the pandemic responds and probably doing a bunch of favors to his buddies in private equity um, to the to to having you know foreign lobbyists stay at the Trump Hotel in D.C. Like that's just penny ante like graft, right? You could go after him for all of that, right? But what do the Democrats go after Trump for? They go after him for this very strange um, kind of Ukrainian conspiracy, which is essentially all about protecting Hunter Biden's nepotism, right? And so you can tell that it's like, as bad as I think Trump is, the criticisms of Trump from a lot of the Democrats don't seem offered in good faith. They seem like they're more about protecting democratic sacred cows than they are um, about describing a good society, right? And they're often more about Trump not using the salad fork, not being polite, than they are um, what Trump is actually doing, right? And so that's, I think, like, and you saw this under Obama too. I mean, a lot of the, you know, like Trump does a lot of things that I think are really evil on the border, right? Separating families and all that. So that's really cruel stuff. But like, Obama was not nice to immigrants either. Uh, he wasn't as bad as Trump, but he was pretty cruel in those policies. And I remember there's this guy, I think John Favreau, who was one of Obama's speechwriters, and now he runs a, a popular podcast network called Pod Save America. And he tweeted how awful Trump was and put up this picture of, of like families being ripped apart at the border or some, some sort of awful scene. And it turns out that that picture was from 2014, right? So he was he just assumed, well, it's cruel, therefore it must be Trump doing it. But it was in fact under the Obama administration. And then if you look more deeply at like some of the things that are going on, like Trump is, is doing a really bad job on the pandemic. Um, but, you know, he hired McKinsey to come up with a plan to reopen the country. And Andrew Cuomo, who I think is also doing a really bad job at the pandemic, although he's doing a better job than Trump, but it's still really bad. He also handled, hired McKinsey to open up New York. So it's like, wait a second. It seems like the political party here is McKinsey, right? And that like when you go under the surface, that's the actual, those are the actual people that are in control of our society. And I don't see the Democrats really making that point. Um, and I only see a few Republicans making that point. 
Interesting. Uh, last thing I wanted to just go over with you is, and you may not agree with this, but I feel there's plenty of examples of these giant digital platforms kind of curtailing and censoring free speech under the guise of community standards. Um, and they kind of become the arbiters and they'll come back and say, you know, it's a private platform. We own it. We get to make the rules. So the question is, does government have any role whatsoever in regulating digital monopolies? At what point do they become so big and so essential that they become like the public square and they can't be just left to the whims of, you know, an owner or two. It's kind of like when they forced, they, 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 they uh, stopped Trump from banning someone on Twitter because they said that's kind of a, they're entitled to have access to you in a way. So in that same manner, um, you know, at what point do these companies get so big that they, they can't just, you know, ban someone? What you're saying is they're private governments and government and policymakers are using them to engage in this censorship that's not legal for the government to do. But if it's done through a private government, a.k.a. Facebook or Google, then it becomes fine. Right. And I think that's a huge problem. I think it's like, you know, whether you're censoring through, you know, like, OK, an editor when I take your, your work and I edit it, right? I'm an editor. When I take, when I have total power over what people read and I edit your work, that's censorship. There's a, there's a spectrum, right? So editing at a certain point, depending on the power of the editor becomes censorship. And we're not, I'm not saying Google's not in total control of speech and Facebook's not in total control of speech, but they're not just an editor, right? There's a spectrum here and they're, they're coming up to this, this line. And that's really a function of market structure. And like what Google and Facebook are is fundamentally, they are communication networks. They're conglomerate. They're both conglomerates. You could put Amazon in there too, because Amazon has control over books. Um, they are conglomerates and they own multiple communication networks. Google owns Google search. They also have face, um, YouTube. They have uh, maps. They have a bunch of different uh, subsidiaries that don't need to be tied together. Um, and then Facebook owns Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, and then they've, they've called Messenger a separate product. So that's four uh, networks with more than a billion users. Um, Google has eight networks with more than a billion users. And they don't operate those networks neutrally. Uh, they also control a lot of the financing through their, their control of ad advertising uh, structures. And in America, from the early 1800s all the way up until really 2000 and 10 or so, um, advertising was a pretty decentralized industry and it was a way of generating revenue for news gatherers that would protect them from the state, right? So in Europe, you know, there was a lot more state funding of media. State funding of media can be dangerous because then, you know, you're not gonna criticize the state. In the, in the US, we, you know, nobody likes commercials or ads and there are conflicts of interest, but, uh, but, the alter but, you know, it does actually let you criticize the government, right? If, you're, if, you're if your revenue stream is not coming from the government, um, and it's coming from a decentralized uh, set of advertisers and maybe some subscribers, you can criticize it. So is, that, was a, that was the American media system. And uh, the centralization of that system, and then the central into the, the hands of these two giant communication networks, right, who, or conglomerates or communication networks is extremely dangerous because it centralizes the flow of information into the hands of basically the CEO of Facebook and the CEO of Google. And that, um, and then they effectively become um, national and global censors, right? They are they are doing censorship. They have, um, you know, under the guise of community standards, uh, under the guise of sort of regulate, like they have private regulations for advertisers and for data collection. I mean, these are the guys that are that are structuring our privacy regimes. They're structuring our speech patterns. They're structuring our media. That's what's that's what's going on. And so I think the government are, you know, the people. The, our democratic institutions need to step in and not just like regulate them. I don't think just regulating monopolies is gonna, that's more dangerous when you fuse the power of the state and, and private monopolies. I think they need to break these guys up. I think it's, it's not that Google is managing community standards badly. It's that Google shouldn't be doing it at all. And same thing with Facebook. It's not that Mark Zuckerberg isn't, isn't managing this well, it's that it's unmanageable. It's, it is just censorship and just, there is no right way to do censorship. You need to break these guys up right? And, and have like multiple competing communication networks. And then you need to regulate those communication networks so that they are neutral pass-through entities, right? That are not picking winners and losers. They're not promoting, you know, Alex Jones, nor are they censoring Alex Jones, right? 
And, you know, if that were the case, right, like, let me just give you about Alex Jones. Google promoted and rec recommended Alex Jones videos 15 billion times, right? So Alex Jones, you can argue, oh, he should, he, he's crazy. He does, says things that are dangerous. He should not be, you know, should he be allowed to be on YouTube or not? It's like, you can have that argument, but like the reality here is that Alex Jones was made famous by Google's algorithm, made a lot of money because of Google's algorithm. So before you get to the question of should he have access to this important public platform, we have to start asking, why is it that Google chose to make him a star in the first place, right? That's the, and if, if Google were just an, if YouTube were just a neutral network that didn't attach itself to advertising and didn't have this algorithm that was designed around their political preferences, which are really for engagement, they're not left or right or anything, then we wouldn't have this problem in the first place. So that's what I would say is break these guys up and then regulate people who control communication networks to make sure that those networks are neutral. And that so one, then we wouldn't have the problem of, that you're talking about. So with Alex Jones, they did that because they saw that that would be popular and it would get them more engagement and more, it's, yeah, it's about so, money. So, so basically what Google and Facebook do is they try to uh, keep you using their products so that they can sell more ads, right? Because the more you use their, you don't pay directly for Google or Facebook, you pay indirectly with your attention and then they sell ads to you. So they, you get paid by, you pay them by being manipulated, right? So um, that's, uh, if it's so that so with Alex Jones, what they found, I assume the algorithm showed is that like his content was more incendiary and would make people angry or would make people excited or whatever it is. And they would keep watching. Right. And that's what, that's what, you know, it was bad for you. It's like, it's like putting, it's like surrounding you with donuts or surrounding you with like, with, you know, sugary, you know, junk food. It's like, if you surround someone with sugary junk food, like all day, they're going to eat it. Right. And uh, you know, they don't give you any other choice. If you are on YouTube, you're not allowed to say, don't surround me with sugary junk food. Um, they just put it in front of you because they want, they sell sugary junk food. Right. So that's, that's a market structure problem. Right. And that's what you have to fix. It's not um, sugary junk food is bad. Right. We have to get rid of all sugary junk food. Right. That's the problem. No, the problem is the market structure, which allows a company that controls everything you eat to only put sugary junk food in front of you. Right. A donut once in a while is good. It's fine. Right. An institution which is designed to only sell you donuts all the time. That's a problem. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I am a bit torn on this whole breaking them up um, solution, because on one hand, it just seems that, you know, based on principle and you should allow capitalism to, you know, why should the government come and tell you you can't grow, you can't be big or you have to break up or, on one hand? And then I kind of understand that they do things in a way that kind of maximizes their profit too. That's part of capitalism also, but it's gotten to the point where they actually get to decide whether you get to speak or not, or if somebody sees you. Well, I mean, I mean let's be clear though. Like Google is not, it's not like Google just became what it is like because they were smart or good. It's what happened is they took advantage of a host of government benefits. So all I'm saying is take those government benefits away, right? The corporate charter is a government benefit, right? That That's just very basic. Limited liability corporation is corporate. But then they don't actually have liability for what is said over their platform. That's a corporate benefit, right? If I you know, do something, if I libel you, I'm responsible. But if Google structures an algorithm to promote somebody that engages in libel, they're not, they're not um, liable for it as government benefit, right? They make money off of that and other, and they're at a competitive advantage out of it. And that's not because they're smart. It's because it's a government benefit. And you go on and on and on all the mergers that they engaged in, that the government cleared their right to merge with other corporate chartered entities, government benefits. So the point is, is that it's not that you should say, let's shut down Google. That's bad. Let's like, there's a lot of great engineers at Google. What Google does is, is really great. I mean, I, I use Google all the time. The point is, Take away the government benefits and then like the way that they become what they are because of those government benefits, break them up so that, you know, just like they, they took advantage of their benefits to buy a bunch of other companies, all a breakup is, is undoing that. It's not like we're, we're taking something that they originally did and undoing that. We're just saying all of these mergers that you bought, uh, that you engaged in, that we allowed you to engage in as a benefit, we're going to, that was a mistake and we're going to you know, take that back. Right. So that, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's like, this is not like the presumption here is that these institutions are natural 
uh, and a force of nature because they exist the way that they are. But in fact, if you look at the origin story of these guys, it's like, no, they're not natural. It's just a bunch of stuff that we allowed them to do when benefits we gave them. So if you just take those back and undo those and reverse those, you'll have a much better, healthier ecosystem uh, of production. It'll be much more fair and, and, and wiser and more stable. Should the government tell them uh, you're not allowed to censor or edit or ban someone? No, I think the government should say, if you sell advertising, right, which is to say, and selling advertising is a form of editing, right, because you're putting advertising in the, the, the platform, right? If you sell advertising, then you don't get liability for what goes over your network, right? So you, you can, if, you, if you're an editor, right, if you are a publication and you are making money through advertising, you are not a communication network and you don't get the legal protections of a communication network. So if you are a communication network, like you're Verizon or you're a Zoom or whatever, and you know, like Zoom makes money because they, you pay them, right, for their service, right? They don't make money if you and I are using Zoom and then Zoom shows us ads, that's not how they make money. So Zoom shouldn't be liable for what we're saying, right? Because they don't make money based on what we say, whatever, you know. But if Zoom were to make money based on what we said, then it would be a different business model and they should have different legal protections. Like Verizon is not liable for what I, what, what I say when I use my Verizon phone or, you know. And, you know, that's true with sort of telephones in general or email providers. They're not liable for it. But if they start making money off of, but like the New York Times is liable for what they say, right? Because they make money based on content production and editing. And I, so I think, you, you know, these guys are regulatory shapeshifters. On the one hand, they're communication networks and they want the legal protections of a communication network and a public utility. But on the other hand, they want to profit by not acting like a public utility, by editing, by manipulating, and by making money doing that. So I'm just saying, you got to pick. You can't be both a utility and a, uh, a non-utility. You either get the legal protections of a newspaper and publisher, or you get the legal protections of a communications facility, but you don't get both. Is the money motive uh, the only reason why they edit, ban, and restrict, and do all those things? No, these guys are after, um, these guys are ideologues. Like Google and Facebook believe, people there, they are neoliberals. They believe in replacing the state with a corporate state. Right. That's why Zuckerberg is setting up a Supreme Court. That's why he wanted to set up his own currency. He's actually talked about how Facebook is more like a business, uh, or it's more like a government than a business. And that's basically true with, uh, with these, with the monopolists in general. They they believe that they are actually better at governing than the government. That's what they want to get rid of, effectively to get rid of democracy or to make democracy, um, you know, allow you democracy in a in a minor sphere that is not that important hmm. so it's censorship uh driven by political ideology it sounds dangerous <laughs> well i mean yeah of course it's dangerous you know i um and uh, i just i just don't think it maps onto the right left distinction like conservatives like to say oh, this is conservative anti-conservative bias that's not really what's going on what's really going on here is is um uh is censorship to uh protect their business models I mean, listen, I got to run, but yeah, this is really fun. And uh, thanks for the call. Thank you very much. Take care. All right, have a good one. Bye. Bye.